Welcome everyone to the Deep Dive, the podcast that skips small talk and goes straight for the concepts that shape our thinking and behavior. In this podcast, cold expertise is defenestrated as warm philosophy is enthroned in an attempt to explore the field in which we're all scientists looking for answers, living well. Hello world and welcome to another episode of the deep dive with me Eyal Shai. Today I'm joined by Ritesh Reddy. Did I say it correctly? Who is not so shy but I'm happy to be here with you. Me neither. Shai is just a name. Um, Reddy, welcome on board yes. first of all. Thank you Eyal. Now, what would you like to, to discuss today, a topic that has affected your life in positive ways? Well, does it have to be positive or negative? I'm not quite sure whether it falls on the positive or negative spectrum. But one of the things that I've always played with through my life has been substances, right? I've always been tripping on some substance or the other. And that's been like the one thing that I've played with all my life. I've played with... So in a way, like I'm obsessed with this idea of play, but this is something that's happened in the recent time, in the recent year or so that I've been trying to focus all my thoughts and ideas and actions around the subject of play. But looking back in hindsight, I have played with my life. I've played with my life and done things that are good, done things that are bad, done things that are ugly. And luckily I've survived to tell the tale. So maybe I did it all just so I could be on this podcast with you and then spill the beans. So interesting. So, so the topic, um, to give it a, a header, is play. And yeah, that's exactly what we're going to do now. Um, it's interesting that you say there were dark sides to it because play, we talked a little bit before about the dark side of play, so I'm sure this will show up. And right now we are going to take a, a journey back in time. And I'm going to ask you to really kind of backtrack and note how this idea of play and how this explicit concept popped in your mind. So you can start in your childhood or whenever this idea starts kind of bubbling to the surface and rising to consciousness. Yeah, I think why I'm talking about play today more often than ever before is the idea that I think that we've often grown as adults into believing that play is frivolous and that at some point of time, Becoming an adult means growing out of play. It's like you outgrow that frivolous stage, you outgrow play, you outgrow being, you know, playful and frivolous. And I think there is room, there is space for that energy to exist even in an adult individual, right? And that's why I'm obsessed with just making a big noise of it and, you know, spreading the idea of play so we can stop giving play a bad name in the adult world, right? In the child's world, it's perfectly fine. It's all they do. Children just play all day long, right? Given a chance, they would not do anything other than that. But in the adult world, given a chance, we would just be working all day long because, you know, probably there's so much we believe that we've been ingrained with the idea that play is something that is to be done as long as you're a child. And as long as you want to grow into an adult, then you better stop playing. You better settle down. You better get, you know, 
pull your socks up and start looking at working your way through life rather than playing your way through life. If we if we look at it like today and we're still going to get to what you're doing today and how you're continuing to explore this concept but if you had to pick a a, a moment in the past where this just beginning to percolate so I'm imagining at some point in your life you were less busy with exploring the concept of play and were busy doing other things. So um, if you want to share what these things were and um, and at some point what changed, what clicked and how the the specific concept come into your consciousness? I think the... F- my, if I were to look back at my life, I would divide it into three phases, right? So there's phase one where... I did nothing but play like I was just like playing the fool I didn't take my studies seriously I didn't take school seriously I didn't take anything seriously or anyone seriously for that matter like I wasn't scared of authority I wasn't scared of my parents I wasn't scared of society's consequences like nothing mattered to me and I was just like oh I can just like you know just play the fool and and get away with anything and as a child you can actually get away with a lot of things right there's a there's a high threshold before you actually get you know you bear the consequences of what you do and i was like always dancing on the threshold i managed to like get by by playing the fool and still not you know create that much of a chaos that i would be taken up and i would have i would be in trouble but I did eventually get into trouble. And I, you know, I went down the path of psychedelics, drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And I was just like lost in the whole thing. And I, all I was doing was, you know, running on this hedonic treadmill and I didn't care about anything else. And I was just running headlong into chaos. And at some point of time, it was like every single day, I'd just wake up and I wouldn't know if, you know, if, if the next dose that I was going to ingest, inject into my body would be the last dose, right? So I'd reached this phase where I was just living every day on the precipice of life and death. And I didn't know whether this would be my last dose, it would be an overdose, and that would be the end of it. And I then, you know, life threw me a second chance and said, okay, guess what, you got to clean up your act. And then, you know, things, circumstances fell in place. And I went into the rehab, and then I started cleaning up my act, and all of that came into place. And slowly, things started getting back together. And I was like, okay, for me, worse than dying of an overdose, was being subjected to a life of being an ordinary person, right? I would have rather died of an overdose than have to live and do a nine to five job and be like everyone else on the planet. Or so I thought, I was like, this life sucks. There's no way I'd rather die, right? But I was thrown into the space where I was told the exact same thing that most people are told. Most people realized by the time they hit puberty, unfortunately, it took me another 15 years before that happened. But eventually I realized the same thing. That, oh my God, we have to settle down. You can't keep playing the fool, right? And you got to like take care of your life, get things in order, start earning money, start taking care of yourself, you know, take care of the bare necessities, et cetera, et cetera. And that's when I, you know, I put my head to the grind and I was like, okay, my nose to the grind. And I was like, okay, let's do this. You know, let's get our things in order. I started taking care of myself. I started taking, you know, I was practically half my weight right now. I'm, I'm 70 kilos. I was like 35 when I cleaned up. So that's practically a skeleton, right? And building every part of my body back up, body, mind, spirit back up from that, you know, that rock bottom phase, that was a serious endeavor. I was like saying, okay, let's, Let's rebuild, let's, you know, let's take this the way it should be done. Let's look at how to do this correctly, properly. Let's learn to be a good human being because I was an asshole. Like 
I mean, it's, there's no way to look at it any other way. I've like completely fucked things up. I've fucked other people up. I've created hell. I've terrorized people, caused situations that have ripple effect across the community. So I've made a complete mess of not just my life, but other people's lives, right? And I think that's where I would call, that's what I would call the dark side of play. And that was the first realization when I was in the worst of situations and one of the fixes I was putting inside myself and I had this thought, I was like, wow, I cannot share anything I have in my life with anyone, right? There was this moment, I cannot share the high I'm feeling with anyone. I cannot share the lows I'm feeling with anyone because who the hell wants to be with an addict who's, you know, who's just like probably going to die with the next fix, right? And I had reached this emptiness where even if I was high as a kite, there was no real happiness, right? I couldn't feel it. I couldn't share it. And it almost felt like it was just limbo. Like the highest of highs just felt like a flat line. There was no more spike at all. Yeah, that, that reminds me of Into the Wild, right? Um, happiness only, only real when shared. Yeah, what, what, this, what I want to ask you is, first of all, I understand that during those years where you were just on the hedonic treadmill, as you call it, that was... Uh, playing that was a continuation of of childish play but um yeah. basically just to a degree that's unhealthy and well into a phase in your life that that is unhealthy so the term itself was not then present in your head of of play you were just basically um a child still in a sense yeah. Yeah. yes and, and may i may i ask like what what was this thing that actually made you turn away from from the drugs from the what was the crisis itself that exact moment what I mentioned the fact that you know I felt that emptiness where I wasn't enjoying like I'd reached a stage where you know you can't really enjoy being high but you need to be high just so that you don't feel low right so it's more like a, there's like a physical need to be high otherwise like I can barely even stand up straight Right? And there's this mental and psychological need to be high. Otherwise, I'm completely down in the dumps in a way that's almost suicidal. Right? So, but that wasn't it. What led me into, like, I was, I, I was probably happy to die. I was like, okay, there's no way out. I didn't see a way out. But circumstantially, I landed up in, you know, a correctional facility, a rehab facility. And then, you know, that's where I had no choice. I was like, you know, physically locked into a space where I had no choice but to clean up. Right. It wasn't by my choice. It wasn't that I decided and made the right decision. And I didn't make that decision. It was forced upon me. But after I left the facility, like that's when the choice was mine. Right. That's when I could choose to walk away, walk back into the space where I'd come from or look to make a different, you know, take a different path through life. That's fascinating because I think I think we'll get to it later, but I'll just plant this flag for later is that it seems that play in its positive sense takes a playground, which is a mm -hmm. which is a defined space and also playmates, uh, willing participants, let's say, because maybe before it sounds like you were playing with people who who weren't really willing to play with you. Um, so that's more more like toying, right? if if to use a, a related term. And since you've um, went on this path of rehabilitation and taking a, a long look at what you're doing at, at your life, 
what were the first steps uh, you've taken? Were they already related to play immediately? Or did it take you some time to settle? I'm interested in hearing about you. What was this gradual re-entering of society like? What were, what were the steps in them emotionally and, and technically? When exactly you felt like you have a foothold on, and you, can, you have a foundation on which you can build new concepts and, and come up with this idea of play? So I had absolutely no inclination towards you know, creating any concept or anything of the sort. I was just looking to survive. And for me, survival was, you know, every single moment I was just like constantly overwhelmed by this desire to go and use and get back to using drugs. Because the thing with using drugs as an addict and not as a recreational user is that you need it for everything. It's just like breathing, right? It eventually reaches a stage where it's almost like breathing, like you never stop breathing. Right. So the same way you never stop getting high. It's just like the moment you stop getting high, you, you know, you look for the next high. So the only time between two doses or two highs is the search for the high, right? There's absolutely nothing else. So as coming back to society, it was like, I would, if I was angry, I would need to use, if I was sad, I would want to use, if I was happy and I wanted to celebrate, I would want to use. If I just met someone and I hit it off with the person, I'd be like, oh yes, like this is so nice. There's such a connection that's used together, right? So like there was this constant obsession and a compulsion to use and every single moment was a battle against actually picking up the drug, right? And and I, that probably took me almost, like it took me years before that would actually, like I would wake up in the middle of the night having nightmares, thinking that I'd actually used. And then, you know, I'd be searching my whole room for stuff that I had, not realizing that I was actually clean. It sounds like, first of all, addiction is something that is so insidious because at first it always involves a good thing, right? So you start doing this good thing and what the good is, is something I'm personally obsessed about, which I'm sure will come up in some conversation in the future. But this good thing that makes you feel good at some point, and you're not even noticing it, right? Um, the whole standard for you of what it means to, to be well kind of drops and drops and drops. And in the end, this thing that used to make you feel good, now you need, now you need it just to get by you know just to get to your zero basically so it's not giving you any high at all right the best you could hope for is to get to sea level with this thing and then whenever you don't have it it actually takes you way way down into the depths of the ocean right yes and you know it's almost like addiction is like your infancy stage right as an infant all you're doing is you're just like feeding you're just suckling milk or you're feeding and you're sleeping right that's all you do your eyes are closed and all you're doing is either your sleep which is like you're completely stoned or you're doing everything needed to get your fix right so it's like feed me feed me feed me and then the moment you get food you just go to sleep Right. Like that's pretty much infancy. And I felt like that's exactly what addiction was like. You know, I'd reached the stage where all I was doing was just trying to get high. And the moment I'd get my high, I'd be, you know, knocked flat out and I'd just be lying there stoned immaculate and, you know, for all practical purposes, dead to the world. Right. And 
when I eventually cleaned up my act, I was like, you know, then I said, okay, now I'm going to stick to the straight and narrow. And I, you know, try to clean up my act and try to take care of, you know, my business, like the way people do in the world, they, you know, get, they start, you stop doing things that could be harmful to others and to yourself. And you try to start doing things that could be helpful to yourself and helpful to others. Right. And I think, this whole phase of doing that was felt like work, right? You're working on getting things back in place. You're working on making yourself a better person. You're working on making your situation better for yourself and you're hoping to make things better for others as well. So uh, and, uh, let me, let me ask you though, this is, this is, you say it like it's some sort of obvious thing and it, and it is obvious once you grasp it but it's not trivial at all that the place you got to was a place of starting to care for for others i mean yourself of course we have when we are addicted to something and we've been on the cusp of of dying we get the sense that oh we need to treat ourselves better but where did the idea of actually involving others in this journey um originate in you Probably uh, that's a difficult question to answer because I think I've always been this kind of person who has been in the thick of things. So it's like if there's a party going on, I'm in the middle of space, you know, I'm the life of the party or I'm always, I'm never a wallflower. So you throw me into any space and I'm always right in the center, epicenter of where things are happening, right? So, and yet I would always feel like out of place in that whole in any sort of gathering. So I'm in the middle of a group, I'm in the center of things, I'm in the middle of whatever's happening, but I still always at some point of time always felt disconnected from everything else and everyone else around me. And as I started cleaning up the whole idea that I was spending more time alone, I started spending more time with others. And at the same time, I started spending a lot of time contemplating about, you know, about how, what, and where I can, you know, take my life ahead. And I didn't have any answers, right? I, I didn't feel that ambition that most people feel. Like I didn't have a desire that, okay, I have to do this. I have accomplished that. I have to reach somewhere. Like with addiction, I was comfortable with a goal which was achievable in the span of a few hours, right? I just needed to get my fix. And that was as simple as that. Like the only goal in life was to get my next fix. And if you said, oh, you got to think bigger than that, it would be like, okay, how can I get the best possible fix? You know, and that was all. It was just obsessively focused around getting high and nothing else. But then when you look at trying to build some sort of an ambition, a long-term goal, a purpose and meaning for life, I still couldn't think of any, right? And I still haven't been able to think of any. And as of now, you know, it's just like, I reached, I, I'm 40 now and I, I actually, I cleaned up when I was, I think, 24, 25, right? I started using when I was like barely pubertal. So I was like around 10, 11 when the first time I started using drugs and I was like 24, 25 by the time I cleaned off drugs. And now around 41, at 40, like, you know, I just like, I have this feeling like, where am I going with this? What am I doing with this? And when COVID struck and I started seeing people dying everywhere around me, I was like, okay, I don't anyway have a purpose in life. I don't have a desire to make like money. I was just making money and I was just making, you know, making ends meet and keeping, you know, myself alive and taking care of myself without a greater goal or purpose. And I was just doing it because, well, 
this is, I'd been to the other extreme and I said, okay, let me see if I can go to this extreme and start taking care of myself. Right. So that was what I was doing. And now when, you know, now this idea that, okay, what if you don't have to do anything? What if you can go back to playing the fool? What if you can go back? Right. And how would I change what I did? So today I'm, it's almost like, I want to go back to being reckless, being crazy, being, you know, it's like, if I'd met you when I was like 15, I would have like just, you know, grabbed you. Hey, yeah, let's go for, you know, let's go to South America and like, you know, let's get stoned, right? Like, and before you know it, I'd been dragging you on a flight. And before you knew it, you'd be, we'd be probably on a plane to South America. Like that, that's how crazy I would have been back then. <laughs> and today I want to do the same thing. And I think today, but I'm trying to figure out how we can do this, the good side of play like that was the dark side of play, right? That was reckless. That was crazy. That could have been, that was endangering my life, your life and your entire future and your destiny, et cetera, in that pursuit of, you know, reckless play. But today it's the same thing. We're just grabbing, we met each other on the internet and we're like, Hey, let's make, let's, let's go start an internet, internet like salon together, right? Like it could be the same. It's, it's pretty much the same thing, but how is this different and how is that different? It's as simple as what I was doing then was reckless, was dangerous and was harmful to me, to you and the entire, you know, to everyone around us. Today, how can I flip the lid on that? How can I do something that is good for me, that is good for you and good for everyone else that, you know, is touched by us in this world? And that's pretty much the angle or direction I'm trying to take play. So I've never done this before because I've just been, like I said, I, I, I've always been an asshole. I've always been the guy who's like reckless, who's crazy, who doesn't give a fuck about himself or others. And how can I turn that on its head and flip it completely into the direction where I can be, you know, good to myself, good to you, good to others around me and make the whole world a better place. I still don't have an answer for that, that that's amazing first of all that you that you got to this point and this realization again i don't think it's trivial at all to to go back um people try to make amends in in all sorts of ways but sometimes they do it in ways that are not actually feasible in terms of doing good in in other things but it's through eliminating themselves in a way it's they're they're just looking at their actions are my actions more benevolent now um, but it seems that you're um, embodying this concept too and it still involves you and the amends you're making are based on you being being a totally different person and inventing new new ways of playing and being with others so i think what i'm getting from you is play for you is very very much connected to other people so play could be selfish in itself and maybe that's why in the beginning you said that you're not sure that play in itself is something positive um, play in itself can be selfish um, it sounds like but now you are working on ways to make it a communal thing a thing that happens people that ha that helps people bond together and and create new things and when did you start taking this seriously and think about it, write about it, uh, meditate consciously on the concept of play, uh, coming up with games, experimenting with games. When, when did that happen on the timeline? So I think that's just been like a year in the making since COVID struck. And then, you know, like I was locked in and I had like nowhere to go, nothing to do. And there was death all around me. And the whole idea of death 
reminded me that there's really no purpose or meaning to life and it other than what I choose to give it, right? At some point of time in my life, my only purpose of life was to get high, right? It was as simple as that, right? And now I can give it some sort of a greater spin and say, oh, you know what? Like, I want to make life, I want to like build the next greatest startup. I want to take, you know, build a rocket and go to Mars or any of those. I can give myself a grander goal and purpose for my life. But really speaking, it doesn't really matter when, you know, when death comes knocking, none of that really matters. And that's one of the realizations that was something that was, I'd always felt all my life because, you know, when you're doing drugs, it's like practically every other day is like a near death experience, right? Practically every other trip could be an out of body experience. So you really, it's a very surreal space to live in and be in and to think and act from. And so none of these realizations were new, but then it struck me as very different and in the way that I choose to embody my life and actions now, right? So at this point of time, I still don't have a greater goal and purpose, but I think I'm looking at play like the way a child would look at play, right? You give a child a toy or something to play with. And the first thing, the first instinct is always destructive, right? They don't look at how to use that toy in the way it was designed to be used. Right. They're always trying to the first thing you give a child something and they're going to like pick it up and start smacking it against the floor, smacking it against the wall. Right. Flinging it away, throwing it up in the air, smashing it against something else. Right. And that is is it's almost like it's the innate instinct. The first instinct is to destroy. Right. And then the child like starts figuring out, oh, OK, what else can I do with this? You know, once that destructive tendency is satiated, then the drive goes towards the creative energy. And I think like my entire life is now starting to feel like that. Like my entire first half of my life was obsessively towards, driven towards destroying myself, destroying, you know, things around me. And I was very happy doing that. Like, you know, it's like, oh, cool. So you get high and, you know, every time you get high, your kidney, you know, your liver takes a beating. Oh, cool. Let's see how much of a beating it can take, right? So essentially, that's how I felt I was living my life. And now it's like I've gone through that destructive phase and now I'm giving myself that second chance and seeing how I can use these energies in a creative way. How can I hone these energies, these thoughts, these ideas, these ideologies, these methodologies, these philosophies that I have towards a more creative way. So I'm obsessed now with trying to use the same idea of play. Like how can you use play to make your relationships better? How can you use play to make your work life better? How can you use play to build your organizational design better? How can you use play to keep your community tethered stronger together? How can you use play to, you know, to solve world problems? Like I'm just obsessed like a madman about throwing play as the panacea to all of mankind's woes. Like how ridiculous is that? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's really interesting, and and you just they just popped a, a model of, you know, actually understanding things in the world. I think it's very on point what you said about children playing with the thing. I think at first we look at things, we sense things in sort of a passive way. We just take our fingers around it, we see its color, its shape. And then we just mindlessly manipulate it, right? And this is what you say, and the thing could break. We're not really experienced. We don't know if it's if porcelain, you know, a child can't inherently um, know if porcelain is 
is fragile or not. So they just throw it around. They found that they find that it is, and it could ruin the thing. The thing might not be able to be um, put together for use. And the other stage is to go back to being away from the thing, but this time not using your senses, but using your intellect, your reason, to reason about the thing and see it as it is as a whole and find a way to manipulate it, but in relation to specific things. So not mindlessly, but purposefully. And I think that's, that's beautiful that this is the, the kind of insight that, that occurred to you, that first of all, you were mindlessly manipulating um, this life of yours, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you took a step back and you had time to be safer and maybe meditate on the meaning of life, think about it more. And then finally, the last step is to come with a purpose to a thing and then try fitting it in other, other, into other things and see how it interacts with them in a beneficial way. And that's also another place where the concept of the good comes in handy because it's it's so so important basically the good is just what is fitting right it sounds silly at first but it's very profound and for you it's going back to this concept of play and doing the playing but in relation to something and this relation is being fitting being good to other things telling yourself what is harmony what how can I make other people happy? How can I make myself happy and not letting go, not letting go of this goal again, keeping it in mind so that everything you do is good for that purpose. Whereas in the beginning, you did not have a purpose. So it was destructive. There was no point. Um, so that's something that just came to me from, from you describing this interesting model of first manipulating things and playing with them. And even now, I'd say it's a very selfish thing that I'm doing because I've realized that this is the way to extend the high I can get from play, right? If I'm, if I, if I'm playing the game in a way, this game of life in a way that is joyous and enjoyable by me, by others, and by everyone around me, then this game is likely to you know, sustain itself in the long, long run. So this is kind of like the long game right every time you get high every time like that game is bound to die like that's why you have the 27 club like everyone's practically dead by the time they're 27 right if you once you go deep dive into drugs you're obviously not going to survive long enough right at some point of time you're going to like either die or you're going to like come off that trip right so you're no longer getting high you're no longer chasing that high anymore and i the way i'm looking at it right now it's still a selfish endeavor and i feel like how can I continue getting high? How can I continue feeling high? How can I, you know, it's like when you have drugs, it's like everyone comes running to you because, you know, you're the man with the stuff, right? So, and then everyone comes running because you can get them high as well. So it's almost like you're like, you know, you know, like push a man, you're like the guy who has what it takes to get everyone high. So it's almost like right now, how can I induce that same high that I'm feeling in everyone else I'm crossing paths with? Right. And the reason for that is as simple as sustaining my own high. Right. Each time I share the high with others, my high increases, your high increases, and the sustainability or the duration or the longevity of our collective high increases each time we share it. 
Well, I think now it connects to me when you mention, mention sustainability, then in my thinking, sustainability is very closely related to creativity because mm-hmm. I was facing the same trouble of trying to figure out a sustainable way of getting pleasure because pleasure is important. We can't uh, pretend that we can absolutely do without it, be completely deprived of it and do well. Um, but taking drugs or even watching TV or a- any of these really passive activities in the end, of course, it's like you enjoy the high, but actually you have not exerted your soul in any meaningful way. And I think the only way to sustainably get pleasure is to be is being creative. And it also ties me back to the idea that we said we were going to come back to later, the idea of the playground and the playmates. So you and I are making rackets together often, and we often discussed how the borders actually make creativity flourish because you want that border, you want that limit to play with and then create something within it. And obviously, we are also playmates in that space, in that studio when we create rackets with just us and others. And I think that's a very good direction that you're taking with this, creating the, the playground, bringing in the playmates so all of us can be creative together and in the process create a much, much more sustainable source for pleasure in this life. So pleasure is not the ultimate good in terms of what should lead you because if if you're only about getting pleasure you end up a junkie that's how addictions are happening right and and this is like you said this is what we do when we're young children we're just junkies and and that's fine that's all we're capable of it at that point um, but when we start developing reason we should really move away from putting pleasure um, as our sumum bonum putting it in a throne and chasing it wholeheartedly without with disregard for anything else right it should actually be um, demoted to second place and well-being should be placed at the top but still that doesn't mean that pleasure is not something that should be enjoyed no our life should be as pleasurable as possible but with the caveat that it can't be the highest good because when it becomes the highest good, then it by definition means that we care less about others' well-being and eventually ourselves when our body falls apart, right? Yeah. If you look at like, you know, the whole idea of pleasure is like, if you think of like earning money, like ambition makes you want to earn money, right? Like, it's like, I want to earn money. I want to earn fame, whatever it is that you want to earn as an adult, like, even pleasure, like the f- chasing that pleasure is awesome, is great. But the bigger question is, what do you do when you catch it? Like that was where, that was the part that I didn't calculate, right? I was constantly chasing pleasure. But what did I do when I caught it? Nothing. Like I didn't know what to do with it, right? And, I, and that was where, you know, it all hit home. The fact that, okay, if I catch it, now what do I do with it? I didn't know what to do with it. And now the answer is like, every time I chase pleasure, the moment I catch it, I want to give it away. Like, that's my solution. That's currently my solution right now to this whole game of chasing pleasure. It's not that I've stopped chasing pleasure, but I'm still chasing pleasure. It's just that what do I do with it when I catch it? 
So right now, like that's why, you know, it's like I practically made 200 rackets, but probably there are just two of them which are solo rackets, which means like every time I'm chasing pleasure, I want to share that with someone. I want to share my joy with someone. I want to share my thoughts with someone. I want to share my ideas with someone. I want to share my, you know, my knowledge with someone. I want to share my insights with someone. Like this constant obsession with sharing is not uh, is not to tell the world who I am or to, you know, you know, or everybody with, oh, check me out. This is me. I'm so cool. I'm awesome. Like the idea behind me sharing everything that I'm doing online is simply because I think that's the only way. It's like every time I catch pleasure, I want to give it away so that my hands are free again to chase more pleasure. So <laughs> I'm still on that treadmill, but right now it's like, it's, it's not a treadmill because I'm not on a loop. I'm just running through the world and not on a treadmill. I'm running in the forest, in the jungle, through this magical forest where I'm meeting people, I'm meeting friends, I find pleasure, I share that with someone. Again, I go chasing pleasure, I find some more, I share that with someone else. Like this to me is, is the antidote to, you know, that chasing the dragon, chasing the high. This is the antidote. It's not stopping, it's not quitting that chase for pleasure and for, like you said, pleasure is important, right? But the thing is, you catch that pleasure, you gain that pleasure, and then you share it. That's the part that I hadn't learned. That's the part that I didn't know. That's the part that no one told me. What people told me as a child was, no, 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 don't chase that high. Don't chase that high, right? And I, and that, that's why when I, when I came back from the drugs and I took the path of you know, straight and narrow, it still wasn't enough because I'd stopped chasing the pleasure, but still I wasn't happy in the way that I was when I was chasing the pleasure. So how do I reconcile chasing the pleasure? And the answer for me, as far as I found it so far, is just giving it away. The moment you find something, give it away. The moment you get that insane happiness inside of you, give it away. Yeah, that's amazing. And it really complements uh, what I said before, because now it reminds me that the whole reasoning behind why I think creativity is such a sustainable source of pleasure is that there is an inherent novelty in creativity and pleasure comes from novelty. And the reason that um, addicts eventually do not enjoy the thing which used to make them feel so good is that it's not novel anymore. There's only so many times that your body can be surprised by this rush, right? So you need more and more and more till it kills you. And there's only so many uh, movies even you enjoy, even if it's drugs that give you the best movies for a while. After a while, you're just, um, you're not really being creative. It's not really you. You're just there to notice things that are moving, new colors, new sensations. But after a while, that gets old. And the only thing that actually always takes you to a baseline and never drops you way below the baseline is creativity. And I think that what you're saying about connecting with other people and sharing this with them, sharing. Um, there is constant creativity between dialogues with people. That's, I think, it, obviously there isn't even one sentence that was said before between two other human beings. You know, what we're doing right now is totally unique. It's um, on one hand novel, and on the other hand is never going to be repeated again. And I think that's what allows us to keep enjoying it so much. Like, I just don't see how playing with other people is ever going to get boring if you're keeping finding new games, to, if you keep finding new games to play, if you keep inventing 
new interactions, new stipulations, which we said were important. And I think that's definitely the way to go. And all the while, you do better for yourself and you do better for them. And it's also a totally renewable source for, for pleasure, uh, but really well-being. Um, the pleasure is really just a, a byproduct. It's, it's good to have it, but we are still well in times when we don't have pleasure. And that's important to know because a lot of people, I think, at any point in their life, when they're not feeling pleasure, they think, oh my God, it's like my life isn't good. I need to go fix that immediately. And the realization we have to come to is that well-being is something different than pleasure. But if you're doing two, the two things, if you really understand the two things, then you can align them and, and have them occur at the same time a lot of the time. And this is where I think Playmates comes into the picture, right? Having Playmates completes that flywheel, right? It's like whenever I feel pleasure and I share that with you, I am sharing that pleasure that I felt with you, right? And then the pleasure you feel from receiving that pleasure with me, you share it back with me. And now we have a flywheel of pleasure running between us, right? We have a flywheel of creativity running between us. We have a flywheel of playfulness running between us. There may be moments when you're not feeling playful, but I'm feeling extra playful. And in which case, you know, I start pranking you, teasing you, taunting you back into the playground, and I pull you back into that spirit of play, right? And now when I am losing that energy and I lose that playfulness and I'm no longer feeling, you know, excited and enthused by the idea of creating and life in general, like you bring me back into it. You know, you, you share your creativity, your playfulness, your vibe, your positivity, and then bring me back. So this is that game where we're playing where, you know, the whole thing of life is not a multiplayer game. It's like, there is no, personal meaning like I can have a personal meaning for life but at the end of the day when I share that it gets exponentially amplified right my happiness gets amplified when it's shared and when you share it back with me your happiness is amplified and then it just becomes this flywheel of joy and creativity and fun and playfulness and everything else that we share between us right and it works the same way for negativity as well so if i just share misery with you you're going to feel miserable when i share my misery with you and it's just going to be like to and fro at some point of time it either spirals down into despair or it can spiral up into delight right and that's why you know the more we share the more we play the more people we bring into the playground the more likelihood of having a good time, it increases with the more the players. So that's why, you know, the more the merrier, the probability of that spiral up into delight rather than down into despair is more likely with more playful, more skilled, more fun, more exciting players in the playground, healthier players, people who are not looking to hurt each other, but looking to help each other. And I think, this is essentially what we're all looking for. We all want, whether we're looking at it in the smallest unit as a family, like, you know, okay, let me build a family, you know, my partner, and let me create my own offspring. And now essentially what you're doing is you're building your own playground with your own playmates. And, you know, you, you create your own playbook of life together as a family, right? And now multiple families come together. You now have a community who are, you know, building their lives around this idea of, their common playbook, which is together, right? And this just keeps growing exponentially. And I think now in today's world, we have 
no limitations in terms of geography. So we're not limited because you're halfway across the globe and I'm this end. We can still connect, we can still relate, we can still play together. And at the same time, we can actually also, rather than grow in terms of scale, we can grow in terms of quantum of emotion and energy shared between us rather than just growing in, oh, let's see which community has most players. Rather, we need to grow in terms of the quality of engagement and joy and sharing that's happening between the players in the playground. Yeah, and that brings me um, back to the present day, let's say, and, and it's going to just sort of naturally shift into what you're, you're doing today. But when I think of a playground, I still, you know, the concept and the image that's attached to it in my mind is, is what we all know of, of having slides and merry-go-rounds and all that in a playground. Um, but we, if we are to reimagine this playground and really uh, make it a little bit more graspable, for people who are listening now, if we're talking about a playground that involves multinational, um, intercontinental players, um, what does this space look like um, to you? So I've been thinking about this idea, like it could be like everything right now, if you look at it, Twitter is one large playground. If you look at, you know, now creating salons on intellect, intellect is a playground. So you have smaller pockets of people gathering together and creating communities. Communities are trending right now. Everyone's talking about community building, right? Even in the crypto space, you have the whole concept of DAOs and everyone's talking about connection, communities, but I'm just framing it as a playground because that way it feels more playful to me and it feels like something that everyone relates to, right? Like everyone has a sense of community, but most people's sense of community doesn't necessarily have to be positive. But generally speaking, I'd say most people's ideas of a playground, their concepts, their memories of playground is always more positive than negative, right? So that's why I'm, I'm just playing with the framing of creating a playground as being a space where you have people who are mutually invested in each other, as well as in the concept of having fun, right? How like you you don't go to a playground to make money. You don't go to a playground to think of what I can get from the playground. You go there to the playground to, you know, to expend energy, to share thoughts, to share ideas, to share yourself and to play with each other. And you're left with a feeling of joy. And the more the players, it's always more fun. And how can this be? This could be a digital space. It could be a physical space, right? And I think... When you said, you know, the idea that comes to your mind is a swing or, you know, uh, a slide or something like that. What you're referring to is toys, right? So your idea of a playground is memories of toys, right? Two, you, two toys that you mentioned. And I think that's one of the ways in which we can rekindle that concept of a playground. What are the things that we can do, the activities or what, what things can we share in the playground? And that's where the concept of toys comes into the picture. So if you and I have to connect what are we sharing right now? We're sharing thoughts, right? So right now, the thought is, is something that you are bringing and that I'm bringing, and we're sharing it on this medium. So this, in a way, is our playground, right? Where we're sharing thoughts with each other, and we're sharing ideas with each other, and this is essentially it. And whatever we do is now something that we can share with the outside world, with people who haven't entered our playground, but watching this by looking at us play in the playground might be enticed might be inspired to join us and play with us and thereby increasing that 
that playfulness, that vibe, that spirit of play in this playground that we're creating together right now. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's very important. What you said about people coming together into into a place and playing together, and I'm just thinking that it should be clear. Like, of course, Twitter is a playground, but it's more a playground as in we're playing in some sort of uh, like an alley. You know, I don't think it was made specifically for play because Twitter can be a lot of things. It can be a place where you promote your business. It can be a place where you uh, maintain some sort of image of somebody who's not really you. Um, it can be a place where you actually harm people by bullying them. It can be all these things. So I'm thinking of Twitter more like as a back alley. Sure, you could play there, but it's not specifically for play. Um, but when I'm thinking about the the places where the slides are and the carousels and whatnot. I'm thinking about a place that um, everybody recognizes as the place to play. And when they know, when they step over this, like the, a certain stepping stone, something they realize that they've come here to play. And there is no point in trying to um, benefit themselves financially, or like you say, it's, it's, without the, the usual purposes of life that we're so accustomed to, but with the sole purpose of actually enjoying ourselves and bonding with other people. So I'm wondering if the digital space needs this type of place that, whose boundaries are clear, that when you step inside, you do this thing, or do you think it's good the way it is? Like any place can be a playground. What do you think? Yes, any place can be a playground, but like you, you know, like you noticed and like you commented, the idea of a playground is a space that is safe, first and foremost, right? Because what is the difference between a playground and a battleground? Like you, like you mentioned, Twitter is both, right? It can be a battleground, it can be a playground, it can be a workspace because people are like, oh, well, I'm just here to sell my product, right? So there's the idea that it can be a workspace, it can be a play space, it can be a, a, a battle space, it can be all of that, right? And I think what makes it a play space is a sense of safety and is a sense of mutual agreement that, hey, we're here to play. We're here to have fun and we're not here to focus on the outcome of what we can get out of this interaction, but we are here to focus on making this interaction awesome, making this interaction fun, making this interaction playful. And that's why I'm obsessed with the spirit of play. It's not the games we can play, but it's the spirit of play that we bring to the playground, right? You could be playing an awesome game, but that same game, the moment you bring scores into the picture, it can turn, it can turn highly competitive and that can turn into, you know, people wanting to cheat to win and then that cheating becoming malicious where you're not just cheating to win, but you're also cheating to hurt the other person so the other person can't win, right? The same game can become extremely detrimental rather than delightful to both the parties involved right and that's why i'm focusing more on the spirit of play how can we imbibe in ourselves and inculcate the spirit of play in everything that we do in the playground and it's not just about the games because games can be awesome games can be fun but games can be cruel games can be you know fear inducing games can be hurtful stressful the same games can be both playful as well as stressful, can be both blissful as well as stressful. But what makes it one or the other is the spirit that you bring into the game. Yeah, I resonate with that very much. And now it makes me wonder, like, what does it take to 
get someone to share the spirit of play again, even if that's something that's been kind of taken from us in all these years of sitting in the school and, you know, focusing on achieving certain things, which are definitely not the things that we would choose to achieve when we were playful children, right? Um, have you had any experiences with, with people just generally that you can um, take something out of them and say, this is a technique that works, this is something that connects us back with our inner child? How do you get back into the spirit of play after years of, of not being there because it takes some unlearning? And how is this unlearning done? I'll give you a very simple game, that, that trick that works perfectly well. It's simple, just gift something to someone, right? If you want to be like, if I want to meet you in the playground and say, hey, Eyal, would you want to be my friend? Will you play with me? The answer, the way to go about that is so simple. Like, even if I want to induce that idea in me that I want to be playful and I don't want to just, you know, go to Eyal and meet him so for the sake of getting something from Eyal. Like the simplest way to turn the tables on that is give you something. Right. So if you look at children in the playground, like when a child is drawing something and if he sees someone next to him or, you know, a friend there, the first thing the child does is gifts him something. Right. So if I'm drawing something and you walk up to me and say, hey, what are you doing? I'd be like, I drew this. Would you like this? And I like draw this and I give it to you. Right. If I'm playing with a stone and then you walk up and I want to be your friend, I give you a stone and I say, hey, this is for you. Right. It doesn't matter if it's my favorite toy, which is worth a thousand dollars or if it's just a stone I picked up off the playground. It doesn't matter. The fact, the act of giving that expression of gratitude for, hey, thank you for being my friend or thank you for being in the playground with me or thank you for playing this game with me. That act of gratitude is the single most impactful, efficient and easiest way to go ahead, make friends, make the entire playground a more playful space. That's amazing. And, and it sounds like a, a good plan. And at this point, I think I'll be really happy to hear and our listeners will be happy to hear um, what you're doing today to, to promote these ideas and where they can find you. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm on Twitter at ready to go and if you ready to go or.com is my blog slash website slash newsletter, etc. I'm always up to no good all over Twitter and I'm creating some sort of a play space online, which is a kind of a cohort for play where adults can come in and turn their stressful lives into more blissful lives. And just uh, the idea is like, if you like, I want to do the same, like what I'm doing right now is not like promoting myself, but I just want to like spread the joy, the idea that we need to play. So I'm always like gifting thoughts, like the way I look at it, these are my thoughts, these are my ideas around the concept of play. I've arrived at them not by reading, by studying and by regurgitating information and knowledge, but simply by sitting, thinking about stuff, watching my cats play. So there's no, you know, there's no science behind what I say. But if you jump in and play, I'm sure you can feel what I'm talking about. Now, let me say that I think there is a lot of science behind what you say. There may be not, not many footnotes, but the scientific way of going is I think you're doing it very well because it seems like you're thinking about things and you're very carefully seeing which concepts sit well with other concepts. And if something 
if if there is a mismatch anywhere then you make sure to fix the kink in your hand in your head so everything fits together and I think you've painted a, a beautifully coherent picture of what your mind is like inside and I'm just really thankful for being so thoughtful and open and playful this whole conversation <laughs> and I think I think the most amazing thing is like yeah you're this Twitter persona who's going like play 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 yeah yeah just <laughs> making noise making noise it's like no guys know that this behind this there's a serious philosopher who looks at his cat and comes up with perfectly coherent logical and beautiful thoughts for the benefit of himself and others so Reddy, thank you so, so much for joining me today and we'll definitely see each other around. Thank you, Yael. This was incredible. I'm so happy I got this opportunity to share my joy, my delight, my fun, my play, my philosophies with you and with everyone who's listening. Thank you nice. so much. Great. So bye-bye for now. Cheerio. Cheerio.